0: Twenty one CL radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vass.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to listen to any episode that you can, and that you have takeaway value that can be applied in your own personal and professional lives. In today's episode, I had a chance to speak with renowned lecturer and author Alfie Cohen. Alfie writes and speaks widely on human behavior, education, and parenting. He has published 14 different books since the late 1980s and has been described by Time Magazine as being America's most outspoken critic of education's fixation on grades and test scores. As well, Cohen has been featured on hundreds of TV and radio programs, including the Today Show, and he's also had two appearances on Oprah. He has been profiled in the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times, while his work has been described and debated in many other leading publications. There were so many questions that I wanted to ask and themes that I wanted to discuss with Alfie in this episode, but I mostly focused in on the areas of self-efficacy, agency, feedback, and assessment, as well as individualized learning. Alfie and I also dug into the key factors necessary for teachers to feel empowered in their own professional learning journeys. Alfie is extremely passionate and very knowledgeable in many areas of education. His efforts to make research and human behavior accessible to the general audience have also been published in the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, Parents Magazine, and Psychology Today. It was indeed an honor to have Alfie Cohen on my podcast. And he left me thinking more deeply not only about the work that I do in regards to coaching teachers around best educational practices, but also the importance of empowering my own children to better drive decision-making in their own lives. I hope you find this episode useful and that Alfie's insight helps you to look at your own teaching a little differently. Without further ado, my episode with Alfie Cohen. Okay, Alfie, uh, we're now recording. So uh, again, thank you very much for taking the time to be on my podcast. It's great to connect with you. My pleasure. So I guess I want to first just kind of jump into, you've written several books, so have you written 15 books, is it, or... Do I have the number correct? Well, it sort of
0: depends how you count. Um, the usual number I use is
1: fourteen. Okay, and um, just to give people a, a frame of reference, can you um, tell us um, when you had published your first book? Your first book, and what your most recent book um, is. Uh, sure, the first book, which is called No
0: Contest: The Case Against Competition was published in 1986, and the most recent one, which came out a couple of years ago, is uh, the fourth in a series of collections of essays, and it's called Schooling Beyond Measure, and there's a dozen or so in
1: between. Right, and and I've heard uh, a number of talks where uh, people have asked you a, a number of questions about the different books you've written, and, and I just want to give you just a bit of backstory into... Um, the school system that we belong to. Have you heard of the International Baccalaureate Organization?
0: Yes, in fact, I spoke at one of their conferences in Barcelona a couple of years ago.
1: Okay, great. So uh, I've been involved in the uh, IB world, in particular the primary years program, so the elementary program, for the last 20 years. So uh, it's something that I'm really passionate about. So a lot of the things that you discuss in regards to autonomy and agency We feel many of the, the teachers and schools within, uh, many of the teachers within our schools are already doing these things related to autonomy. But I wanted to just give you Bandura, Dr. Albert Bandura's definition of self-efficacy, then ask you to just kind of, Uh, Talk about, um, what, you know, what you agree with, what you would add to it. So, what Bandura says is self-efficacy refers to an individual's belief in their capabilities to organize and execute courses of action required to produce given attainments. So, what is your take on, in the work that you do on self-efficacy and the importance of teachers understanding the key factors to developing self-efficacy in learners?
0: Well, self-efficacy, I don't find as useful a concept as autonomy, um, as it's been developed by people like Ed D.C., Richard Ryan, and their colleagues in the um, self-determination movement worldwide of psychologists, because it's a deeper sense that taps um, uh, the extent to which Someone has a feeling of volition and has, in a healthy way, integrated the capacity for feeling. As one researcher put it, more like a, an origin in life than um, than a pawn. Um, it's not just about um, being effective at what or efficacious in one's actions. Um, it's about having the sense that I'm not merely controlled by others or forces outside one. And yet, at the same time, it's not a purely individualistic uh, conception, the way the word autonomy is sometimes used to mean something more like privacy or self-sufficiency, because critical to this formulation is um, the importance of community, a sense of belongingness, participation with others, not just on one's own. So that's a that's a careful balance. Now, what promotes this, um, especially in a classroom setting, uh, begins with um, doing more asking than telling. It raises questions about a predetermined curriculum and rather asks students to participate in negotiating that curriculum based in part on their own questions about themselves and the world. So the kids learn to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions and not jumping through hoops with respect to what they're told they must learn or with respect to a series of rules. So both in terms of the academic issues, what we're learning, and the non-academic features of classroom life, how are we going to solve problems, make decisions about what happens, there's a sense in which um, it's the teachers are eliciting the issues and concerns and backgrounds and questions of the students. um, And serving to facilitate a more democratic process by which we decide how we want our classroom to be um, rather than the teacher simply managing them to get compliance. And we figure out, not just each individual, but we as a community figure out what we're going to learn and how.
1: Yeah, and that's that's very much, I mean, the heart of, I think, what you're describing is inquiry-based teaching. And, And I heard you in an interview say that There should be a a level of discomfort there with the adults because of this idea of instilling agency in young people. Um, When they begin to take uh, autonomy and ownership over their learning, it might be at odds with what the teacher or the parent feels that they have to um, ask of the student or, or their child or command of them. So can you talk about that level of discomfort and finding that balance with uh, teachers uh, embracing that the discomfort as, as being part of that co-construction of the learning experience in the classroom? If the teacher isn't
0: prepared to be discomfited by what the students do, then the students were never given real choice in the first place. I've actually heard parents say things like, you know, and I don't really care what the kid does, I'll let them decide. Um, but that's not meaningful autonomy of course um, there will be non-negotiable features of
1: of uh, of what children do this does not suggest uh that
0: it's a less a fair model where the the kids do everything while the teacher just has her coffee In fact, there's an active and rather tricky role for the adult, which is a lot harder than, on the one hand, telling them what to do, or on the other hand, letting them do whatever the hell they want. There's a sort of dialectic back and forth between um, the adult and the kids. But the kids are not merely filling in the gaps to, to determine how they're going to do How they're going to fulfill the expectations of the adults, because the expectations, the outcomes, the goals, the questions are also something that the kids um, uh, participate in. So um, uh, that's that's hard. It requires not only a series of skills on the part of the teacher, but an ability to give up control, um, to 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 take a leap, to have trust, and. Um, to be somewhat flexible and improvisational in the way the learning actually happens. But the rewards of this are enormous. It's not only a more respectful way to treat children. People of any age should have some substantive say about what it is they do all day. But it's also far more effective. Um, It's truly breathtaking to watch this happening in a classroom, whether it's a primary grade classroom, high school, or even university as compared to the traditional model where the kids have very little to say about what it is that they do. And again, it's it's not only nicer um, to be responsive this way and autonomy supportive of the kids, but it's also um, uh,
1: far more effective at promoting most of the long-term goals that we have for kids. Right, and and you've you've talked about the progressive student centered paradigm as opposed to the traditionalist paradigm, and I guess the question I have: if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and be the principal of a school um, that mm-hmm. you can build, you have any any vision? Um, budget is no issue, but if you were to be able to start up your own school, what are the first yep. things that you would have teachers do to plant the seeds for deep learning to flourish, yet at the same time, what would you preserve from the traditionalist paradigm?
0: Well, um, I guess the latter part of the question depends on what components we associate with the traditionalist paradigm. Um But I would begin by inviting teachers, as, in fact, I actually do when I give presentations. What are your long-term goals for the students uh, we teach? How, How would you like them to turn out? What would you hope they'd be like years from now? And then I would elicit their responses and then turn to both actual practice of schools that have been doing this sort of thing for a long time uh, a signal that we don't have to reinvent this proverbial wheel, and from research about cognitive development, child development, um, in order that we can meet those long-term goals um, and have the courage as a, as a school um, to follow this evidence and these values where they lead, even if it means um, diverging from what most schools do. So, for example almost all groups of teachers will eventually say that one of their goals for students is that they want them to be lifelong learners, which I take to mean we want kids not only to know a bunch of stuff, but to really get a kick out of playing with words and numbers and ideas. We want them to want to figure stuff out. Um, And if that's, if we're serious about that, Research is very clear that among two practices that kill the desire to learn are grades of any sort, extrinsic inducements, point systems, marks, awards, and so on. And on the other hand, forcing kids to work a second shift of academics when they get home from a full day in school. In other words, homework. So if we're serious about wanting kids to delight in learning, we would have to slate for extinction any version of letter or number grades um, on the one hand, and the practice of forcing kids to do more academics after school is over. Now there's many other examples like that where you start with the long-term goal and then you see where it leads you. You know, if if we want kids, for example, to be compassionate people, who are are concerned about others, well, research suggests that there are certain ways we can promote that authentically, and other more traditional practices and policies that actually make kids more self-centered. For example, rewarding them or praising them when they've been helpful is an excellent way to destroy compassion, because now the student is just looking for that pat on the head that verbal doggy biscuit for living up to the teacher's expectations and expectations specifically for behavior, which is a word that should make us very nervous because when you're focused on measurable behavior, you're ignoring the needs and motives and values that inform the behavior. You're ignoring the kids. And so you'd want to move away from any of the remnants of behaviorism from uh, standardized tests on the one hand to behavior management plans on the other. So all of this can be constructed um, from from the start in a a classroom or school uh, if we have the willingness to leave behind stuff that we've been doing either to make kids controlled or to raise scores on bad tests, or just because it's always been done that way. Yeah, there may be to get to your last question certain features of of the traditional schooling system. We we decide to leave intact, but only if it's passed these um, rigorous uh, standards of making sure that they're likely to lead to kids turning out the way we hope they will as independent thinkers, caring members of a community, critical thinkers, curious, and all the other things that
1: people say we want. And and when you, in your experience, you've obviously been to so many schools, you've you've lectured, yeah. you've, you've met teachers, you've met administrators. When you walk into a school, you get a feel right away. And, and in the work that I've done visiting schools and consulting with schools, I can walk down the hallway... And, and you can see beautiful art displays, but every single piece of art is of a house with four windows and a door and a garden, you know, and it might be beautiful, beautiful art, beautiful artwork, but it's not individualized. And I guess the point I'm getting at is when when you go into schools, what do you hear and what do you see that that um, helps you realize that you are in a great learning institution?
0: fact, uh, years ago, I came up with a little chart with two columns. I called it What to Look For in a Classroom. And on the first column was Good Signs, and the second column is um, Possible Reasons to Worry, which uh, I published this in a couple of places, and it's on my website if people are interested. And um, yeah, I I gave a lot of thought to that and then wanted to put that specifically in the hands of... um, Parents as well as administrators to be thinking about what's a good sign. Some of them, some of these are, um, depend on showing up when the kids are there to actually watch what's going on, Mm -hmm. um, during a classroom. For, for example, it's a good sign if, um, the kids are talking with each other a lot during a whole class discussion, so that a question is asked and then one kid says to another kid, you know, um, yeah, but I disagree, because remember last week when we were talking about the book, we said, and the teacher is watching and possibly commenting or asking a clarifying question, as opposed to a traditional classroom where most of the questions are either asked or answered by the teacher who's involved in every interaction. That's the sign of a teacher-centered class role. That, um, there's loads of other things, too. Some of the stuff you can even see when if you wander a, a school when, when it's not in session. For example, as you point out, what's on the walls? Um, is it mostly kids' stuff or is it commercial posters? And if it is kids' stuff, are they... Are these examples uh, frighteningly similar, suggesting that there's, you know, a right way to draw a house, or a right way, single right way to analyze the short story? So there's a bunch of other examples of this. You know, uh, if I walk into a classroom, I want it to take it should take me a minute to find the teacher. Um, if the teacher is front and center um, lecturing, that's a bad sign, even in a college classroom, let alone in a in a K twelve classroom, um, does the place look like it's overflowing with um, rich materials of varying kinds? Um, are kids doing different things at the same time? Does it look like a place you'd want to spend a day, or does it have an institutional feel, and so on?
1: Yeah, and I think what you're saying—you you, we're so lucky when we see those things in a classroom, and. Uh, when you see teachers that are, are, um, have designed a learning space in that way. And I think I, I heard you um, give an interview once where you talked about uh, giving feedback through questioning rather than giving feedback through through praise. Um, but can you talk about the role of, of feedback? Because a lot of the evidence shows that it's timely feedback that matters um, in in a, child's lear- in a student's learning journey. Um, so can you talk about the role of feedback and the role of questioning in feedback? So when a teacher is working with a student, the questions they might ask to, that will ultimately, um, be a form of timely feedback. Well, to
0: be, I don't want to be pedantic here, but feedback means information. So if you're praising a child, that's not feedback, that's judgment, That's evaluation, which is very rarely actually required. Um, The kinds of questions we ask should depend on what our goal is. Um, Is the the purpose here to help students think more deeply about what they're doing? Well, first of all, you have to have tasks that call for deep thinking. There's no point of giving. don't, Don't ask what's the best feedback to give if you're having them do worksheets or memorize facts for a test, because the task itself isn't valuable enough so that we should even get to the topic of, of how to do feedback. But if, if they're doing stuff that's about deep thinking, potentially, then we want to help them do it better while really enjoying what they're doing. So any comment or question that we offer, anything in the name, any information provided under the the category of feedback, should always be geared to how can what I say or ask nurture the child's curiosity, the desire to find out more, rather than just to acquire uh, another decontextualized skill. So sometimes I might ask a, a generic question for kids, hopefully, doing stuff in small groups, by the way, collaboratively, not just alone. And the question would be, how can I help? As opposed to, here's what you need to do this up to my standards. And then there will be specific things like, um, what did you notice? Which is amazing because that question cuts across disciplines as well as age groups. What did you notice about the way these plants are growing? What did you notice about the way the poet grabbed your attention in the first line? What did you notice about how problems always seem to crop up in the Balkans when we look at world history? What did you notice? And um, even when there is a right answer in math, uh, a question, an interesting question might be, how did you get that or, is there another way you could have gotten that so that the focus is on the thinking rather than the mechanical production of right answers? And outside of math, we should be much more interested in the depth of thinking than thinking about right answers. I mean, there was a point in my career where I taught high school English, and I'm embarrassed to say that I spent far too much time, even in the English class, on questions that had right answers. Like, what is iambic pentameter? What's the difference between a simile and a metaphor to which the correct answers are,
1: who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um, what is your... When you think about teachers and the traditional appraisal system of teachers is one that the principal goes in two times a year for three minutes and then writes down what they did well, what they need to get better at. Um, this The school that... Um, that I'm working at right now. Um, We have a professional inquiry-based teacher, I don't even want to call it, it's not really a teacher appraisal system, but teachers identify a professional inquiry and then um, work towards uh, better understanding that inquiry throughout the year. Obviously, the inquiry has to relate to the kids in front of them, but um, it, it has worked well to kind of put autonomy and ownership in the teacher's hands um, to decide on their inquiry and then be coached through their inquiry in order to become better at what they do with the trickle-down impact being enhanced student learning. But what what are your views on, um, I hate saying teacher appraisal, but how do schools hold teachers accountable? And what is your advice to schools to empower teachers to, to drive their own learning and development? In in terms of what a principal
0: or other administrator says or asks, um, every one of the responses I just mentioned that a teacher uses with kids is something an administrator can use with teachers, beginning with, how can I help, which is very different from I've come to observe you to decide whether I think you've met certain standards. The other questions I mentioned that use with kids across different disciplines also make sense to help teachers get better at their craft. You know, how did this happen? <laughs> um, what happened here, and was there another way you could have done it? Um, did you feel it was successful, or simply, again, what did you notice? Um, the other aspect of of effective um, uh, support for for teachers, I think, is to make sure that they feel part of a unit of educators, all of whom are responsible for all kids, not just the ones who are in my class nor am I responsible alone, or to be held accountable singly for what's going on in my classroom. So um, if I I were a principal, I would make sure that teachers were not only allowed, but encouraged to visit other classrooms in session, including those taught by teachers who are doing, uh, who have kids of different ages, so that Teachers can watch each other and, if invited, give feedback, which can be useful to the teacher being observed as well as suggest all kinds of ideas um, to the teacher doing the observing. And um, uh, we have to make sure, above all, that teachers need help or if there's a problem here are the right criteria. You know, that that uh, that's just, as, again, the same as with kids. Um, how successful is intervention X? With a kid or with a teacher, well, what do you mean by successful? In the case of the kid, it shouldn't mean merely being mindlessly obedient um, or producing good test scores. Okay. And with with teachers too, said, um, what is a successful teacher? It's not one who transmits information efficiently to passive receptacles so that the kids do well on tests or succeed by stupid criteria when the kids get to the next year. If kids are, I want to see, first of all, when I walk by a classroom, I want to hear a lot of voices. Um, And so what... How can I help this teacher to be more successful at shutting up and doing more listening than talking? How can I help this teacher create a more democratic environment where kids are more excited about the learning, Um, where we've moved away from rewards and punishments uh, and really nurtured intrinsic motivation? And you know that will. And how can we do this together? Um, again, to move to the collaborative and not just
1: the individual. Right, and when you think about the, the um, you know, self-determination theory with Dietschy De- and, and Ryan and that idea of um, autonomy and relatedness and mastery, and I want to add in there the, the idea of challenge and, and getting students to identify the just right challenge for them in any learning task. You know that they are responsible for co-constructing with the teacher, but can you? I know we're we're pressed for time, and I want to respect your time. So we have about five more minutes, but I want uh, I want to just kind of pick your brains about what differentiation means to you, and and um, obviously it it depends on the teachers really knowing their their students in order to help them navigate their way through. Um, what the best kind of challenge or entry point to learning is, but can you just speak to the role of differentiation in the classroom and offer advice to teachers who want to be able to authentically differentiate to meet the needs of each of their learners?
0: Um, sure. Uh, differentiation or, or individualizing um, what what we're teaching is, of course, a uh, cornerstone of one of many aspects of, of, of effective teaching. So, for example, um, despite research showing that it has no benefit below the high school level, and questionable benefit even in high school, but if the teacher insists on giving homework, obviously you don't give the whole class the same assignment. That's like the most basic notion of, of good teaching is that the things that the kids are being asked to do should, will be different because the kids are in different places and have different interests. Um, and there are other ways of, of doing this, too, to respond to the individual needs of, um, of kids, not just what they're capable of doing, and certainly not based on their test scores, which will never be used uh, to determine anything who gets to graduate, who goes on to the next grade, who gets to be in this classroom or special enrichment, or what assignment kids are getting. Because tests measure what matter least. But by sitting down next to kids, watching them read, seeing how they solve a math problem, we can learn more. And by asking them about their interests, um, the thing that predicts to excellence And, by the way, appropriate challenge level is letting the kids decide, although I I would caution again, in the absence of grades, when kids are trying to get a good grade or grade equivalent, like, you know, a score on a rubric or exceeds expectations or all the other ways we smuggle in grades by not calling them that – Kids who are trying to get a good mark, a good evaluation, will pick easier things to do, not because they're lazy, but because they're rational. Of course, they're going to do better, get a better grade, if they're doing stuff that's not challenging. At the same time, we also have to be careful not to confuse harder with better. Just because a school is rigorous doesn't mean it's any good. It doesn't mean the stuff is engaging or meaningful or important. Um... But when you take away extrinsic rewards, including but not limited to grades, kids are more likely to stretch themselves and want to do stuff that's beyond, just beyond in some cases, what they're comfortably capable of doing. And a truly individualized curriculum will happen if you begin by asking the kids the questions they have for the projects that they will then create sometimes in small groups. In other words, you, you have to, if you're doing a standardized, one-size-fits-all, top-down kind of traditional curriculum, you may have to hire an expert to help you artificially individualize it. Um, but if you have a bottom-up, student-directed, project-based approach to learning that's about exploration well to the extent kids are already choosing their projects and defining their own questions you've already individualized it in a more authentic way
1: so and i love what you just said there about that that process and the bottom up the concept of bottom up right and and um i guess what would your ideal report card look like or or you know um and I say, hate to say report card because it implies grades, but um, a um, informational report about uh, their, uh, for parents to see how there's how their children are doing. What would your um, report card look like?
0: No letters or numbers, just comments and the comments as much as possible just descriptions of what the teacher has noticed rather than evaluations but even be- better than these narrative reports or conversations or conferences with parents, with kids, with parents and kids, best of all, with parents and kids, where the kids drive the, sh- uh, drive the, the vehicle and, and direct the show. Um, you know what's better about a, a discussion uh, where feedback is included? Why, why that's superior to a narr- even a narrative report card is a narrative report card while at least avoiding the horrendous harms of rating and ranking kids, is still a monologue. It's still the teacher talking at the parent and the kid, whereas a conversation has at least the possibility of being a dialogue um, that can help everybody to think more deeply about what's going on. And remember, again, and maybe this is a good note to end on, what matters more than the technique or the strategy just as with staff development, as with uh, feedback with students and their learning activities, and, and here, too, um, with this kind of uh, assessment, what matters most is not the technique of how we do it. It's the decision together as a community of why we're doing it. Why do we want ought to assess kids? If the point is so we can motivate them to try harder and show a growth mindset and memorize more facts, that's a problem because that's extrinsic motivation that tends to kill intrinsic motivation. If the goal is to affix a label to kids so we can sort them who's better than whom, that's immoral as well as intellectually bankrupt. If our goal, however, is to help kids think more deeply about questions that matter tomorrow than they did today and to love doing it, ah, now we have a legitimate goal, and the strategies we use for reaching that goal are more likely to be meaningful than if we just started with the question, what does the report card look like? What are we trying to reach? What are we aiming for in the long run? And is it a legitimate and meaningful objective? Um, is it about depth of thinking and excitement and helping kids become good people as well as good learners? If so, we're going to probably be able to avoid most of the counterproductive
1: strategies. Yeah, that's that's great advice to, to end on, Alfie. And um, Can you tell people where they can uh, find you on social media and your website?
0: Yeah. Um, Yes, I post usually one quotation or link to research every day on Twitter at Alfie Kohn. My name is spelled A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N. And most of the stuff that I would point people to who are interested in this is on my website, which is Alfiecone.org, O-R-G, which contains hundreds of articles as well as information about my books and a couple of lecture DVDs.
1: Okay, that's great. And uh, again, uh, thank you very much for your time. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast are uh, IB teachers, uh, International Baccalaureate teachers, so I'm sure they'll uh, appreciate your insight. So thanks a lot for your time, uh, Alfie. I'll I'll send you a link uh, to the podcast when it's out, okay? Great. Thanks so much for your interest. Okay, take care. Okay, bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some
1: more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.